Welcome to Inside Stories. I'm Tequila. And I'm Jen. And here on Inside Stories, if you all remember, we go deep inside these live stories. We interview the storyteller for craft, technique, emotion, um, and we just have a generally good time. Well, and this week we're here with Jennifer Esperanza. Um, so welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, so um, you're like one of our few return guests. We had you, I think, early in season one. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this is a story you told at the Moth, I don't know, probably like three or four years ago. I want to say it's about four years ago now. Yeah, so yeah. what we're going to do is we're just all going to listen to it, and then we'll regroup and talk about it. Okay. So when I was 14, by some miracle, my parents allowed me to go to my very first football game. Um, I was so excited. I had very strict immigrant parents. My parents immigrated from the Philippines, uh, raised me super Catholic, super strict. Um, I was not allowed to go anywhere. So for some reason, they allowed me to attend the stereotypical American high school football game that would happen on Friday night. Uh, I was so excited that I don't even remember who we were playing, who won, um, but I was caught up in the moment that I ended up hanging out with friends another 45 minutes, another hour afterwards um, at their house, staying over the time that I told my parents I'd be home. Um, So I came home to find my father white as a ghost, and he'd gotten sick in the bathroom. My mother was in the throes of a full-blown panic attack. Um, and, and basically, it was because I was late. How could you do this to us? We told you to be home at this particular time. You never bothered to call. And you know, I felt so guilty that my one chance to finally break free of their strict rules and to, to be out there, um, I'd messed up. I, I didn't bother to call them. And one thing you have to know about me is that, um, you know, their anxiety was not unfounded. Um, In our house, (laughs) um, living with, um, you know, strict immigrant parents, there was another layer layer of anxiety and nervousness they had, which was the fact that uh, we had my grandmother living with us, and she was an undocumented immigrant. And this was during the 1980s. um, And... Uh, we lived in constant fear that INS would come and find out that grandma was undocumented. She came in the 70s. Um, the dictatorship was going on. She left the day that Marcos had declared martial law and never went back. And so we lived in constant fear. I, I kind of liken our existence to kind of living like Anne Frank. Um, it was windows shut all the time, curtains closed, never answer the telephone, never give anybody your telephone number. Somebody had cranked all, called us once and my mom was so panicked that she ended up changing our telephone number entirely after one crank call. Um, I was not allowed to talk to strangers, not allowed to talk to especially white people because white people could be INS. Um, so everybody um, who was white could possibly be INS. Um, and so my existence was very much lived under this constant fear that grandma would be taken away. Also, on top of the fact that I think my mom, um, you know, there were no words for it. Immigrants don't really talk about PTSD or anxiety, but my mom, you know, she was old enough to live through World War II, and so I'd grown up with stories of her telling me about her childhood spent um, hiding in trenches um, as the Japanese were invading her village right over her head, and she had to keep really silent unless they would get found out and, and get caught and being taken as prisoner of war or worse, killed. And so she brought that fear into our house, and so it was not unfounded. Um, and 
what do you do when you grow up with this kind of existence as a kid who born and raised in America but pretty much was living the life an undocumented person? Um, I lived in my head a lot. I was not allowed to go outside, so read a lot of books. I read the encyclopedia from A to Z. Um, we did not have a whole lot of money for kids' books, and so I read anything I could get my hands on. Um, J.C. Penny catalogs. I could, I could recite to you all the different kind of china patterns. I still memorize what they look like. Um, the Yellow Pages, um, the San Francisco Chronicle, which you know we would get occasionally. My dad would, would find it on the bus, and he'd take it home, and I'd read it from cover to cover. Um, and I grew up on a steady diet of just television. Yeah, just TV, a lot of... Norman Lear sitcoms, Love Boat reruns, Price is Right, Sale of the Century, Falcon Crest. Grandma did not want, she didn't believe in children's programming, so it was pretty much game shows and uh, soap operas for my entire life, and that's how I pretty much learned English. Um, and, you know, in a sense, as a child, I became an anthropologist. I learned about the world watching what was happening on television, trying to find out what were the patterns of behavior, how did other people out there live, what kind of lives did they have that I didn't know about? So on that night, when I came home to find my parents in this full-blown planet attack, I felt very guilty. But at the same time, I also felt that their caution was a little bit too much. By that time, my, my grandmother was able to secure uh, legal residence uh, under Reagan's amnesty law around 1985, 1986. You were allowed to apply for legal status if you came undocumented. And so she was able to secure that. And I told them, I told my parents, if you don't let me go out there and live my life, right? If, if you don't let me out there in the world for fear that something bad will happen to me, nothing will happen to me. And I have to thank them for listening to me and really hearing me out. Um, I ended up becoming an anthropologist. I, I hold a PhD in anthropology. Um, I've lived in Germany, in Bali, Indonesia. I've traveled to Uzbekistan, to Turkey. And I call my parents every time to let them know that I'm okay. Um, I just want to say that I'm always like a sucker for like a good uh, full circle in the story. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and I just really loved your full circle. It wasn't heavy handed, but it was just like a nice echo back. So I just, I really like how you ended that. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, I think when that, when I ended that way, I think I ended up, um, you know, thinking about that spontaneously, that full circle didn't occur to me till I was on stage telling that. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's super interesting. I know Jen and I were doing a workshop the other day. We were talking about the full circle and how you, you add things in to connect and especially that universal theme. And now that um, I hear it again, that last part stands out about like you don't let anything happen to me, nothing happens. Like that is an awesome line that could fit anywhere in the story with any story and connecting to everyone's life. So that was pretty awesome. Did, was that a spur of the moment thing or was something you um, intentionally wrote in. Yeah, that was something I intentionally wrote in. I think I, I read a version of it somewhere. I think um, I was reading about, um, you know, what happens with age is being able to kind of discern, um, you know, different life situations, different contexts. And I think what I was trying to communicate um, to my parents, it hadn't occurred to me now, but I think I was trying to communicate to them, you need to be able to kind of discern the different levels of caution different levels of danger out there. Um, because if you just kind of put them all in one bucket, just danger in general, 
nothing will happen to you. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, that really struck me as interesting. I, I had read something like that about it, you know, a couple of years ago, and I still take that to my kids. Um, you know, I still think about that with my own kids when I see them, you know, on the streets with their roller skates or the skateboards. And, you know, I want to say, don't get on the street, but they need to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I actually, I, I wrote that line down too. the, you know, nothing will happen to me. And the thing that I think is interesting, you know, when you're putting together a story of like a, a childhood memory, but you're telling it with your sort of adult eyes and experience. Right. And so, you it clearly comes across that you have just a lot of sort of empathy and understanding for your parents, you know? And so, and so it just, it seemed, you know, great that they were able to like hear what you had to say and like reassess the risk. And yeah. And it wasn't always that way though. I think at that moment it had suddenly occurred to me, I had this moment of clarity, look, you know, you have to be able to let me go um, because otherwise nothing will happen to me. Um, I have to say, you know, even years after I was still, you know, the rebellious teenager. Yeah. But at that moment I, I did have that clarity, which I'm glad that I did. Something happened. Must've ate something or drank something <laughs> <laughs> for that moment, giving me that clarity. Too much sugar at the football game or yeah. something like that. You're like, I'm gonna go for it. It's my one time. Yeah. Um, another thing you, you said that, um, again, stood out to me this time, and I never thought about seeing it that um, way, was you were an, an anthropologist as a kid. Um, I have that similar experience of reading everything I can get my hands on um, because we didn't have a ton of money. So it was like JCPenney catalogs yes. and encyclopedias and random newspaper and back of album covers and watching TV, studying oh people's behavior. Yes. Um, so can you tell us a little bit? bit more about how that played into the whole immigration part of your family where you didn't have that as a close-knit community you just had to kind of be observant of it and try to tell your family teach your family because they also needed to you know learn some things too absolutely um you know I think when you are observant from an early age you start picking up on patterns or noticing patterns that other people don't notice right so I remember seeing depictions of Americans on, you know, TV eating dinner, you know, and, and on the side was always like peas, like peas <laughs> not mixed with anything, but just like peas, right? Green peas. And I would see that on like, you know, the cover or the, the front of the Swanson's family, you know, dinner, mm -hmm. frozen dinners. And I thought, okay, so that's a pattern. Like I'm seeing this on TV. I'm seeing this like on billboards. I'm seeing this on the, you know, the front of, of frozen dinner boxes and those kinds of observations, right? I would inform my parents, like, how can we can't have peas just on the side? Why do they have to be mixed with stuff? So, you know, you're a kid, and these aren't, like, huge revelations. These aren't huge patterns that, that mean anything, but that's actually what an anthropologist does. Mm -hmm. um, I just hadn't realized that was actually a job. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, yeah, I think I exercised that particular muscle pretty early on, and I think a lot of immigrant kids do. Mm -hmm. yeah. And you have to figure out a way to integrate those things or not integrate it um, as the field that both you and I are also in now. It's making those observations, too. And um, one of the things that super um, strikes me with with children of immigrant parents is having to make that observation of society and then being cognizant of what things like peas, like most cultures, we put peas in stuff. In stuff, And yeah. so imagine like that observation as a kid to now be like, oh, peas are on the outside and wanting your family to do this thing that, you know, TV, billboards, Swanson or whoever else thought 
we need to sell more peas. Let's put it on the outside and make everybody <laughs> want it. And um, so how did that, um, especially as you got older and had to integrate, um, play into that, um, I guess, trying to, to, to help, especially your grandmother who was mm-hmm. undocumented or, and eventually became that way, um, kind of understand more about who you were because you were a totally different human than they were coming into America that way. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. Um, I think it sets you up for learning how to be a chameleon um, because you have to be observant of what the patterns are in that particular context, that particular situation, and um, kind of molding yourself at the moment so that um, you can blend in, you don't stick out too much, um, or people don't stare at you and you know ask you why your behavior is so different that, oh, is it because of your culture um, or whatever it is. Um, and, you know, with my grandmother, yeah, kind of helping her navigate the world because she didn't quite understand mm-hmm. either. Um, and so having to interpret things for her, we'd, you know, take a walk to the local 7-Eleven and I'd have to explain, okay, mm-hmm. so this is like where, what the layout of the store is. This is where we can find this or that, um, you know. And so, yeah, um, it really helped to be able to kind of be a translator for her, not just linguistically, but culturally too. Mm-hmm. One thing that I remember when the first time I heard the story that I think, you know, just sort of what storytelling can help people understand is like you really express really well this idea that it doesn't matter whether you're documented or undocumented. Like if one person in the family isn't, then you're all mm-hmm. not essentially, which I thought was just kind of you know interesting. I hadn't really thought about that. And then mm-hmm. I think, um, you know, with good storytelling, you know, like I think this really shows how like a use of a detail can really bring a point home. And so I thought your example of um, like you got one crank phone call and your mom changed the number, right? So like that just really, that really sort of showed like, oh, okay. So that's, that's how fear manifests. Like that's, you know, how it works. So I thought I really liked, you know, I'm a big fan of settling into a couple key details. And I really thought you really made your point really well through your details. Thanks. Yeah. When I was first thinking about this story, you know, it allowed me to, zoom out and kind of think about those little moments that I had normalized. But when I zoom out, I realize, wait a minute, the reaction was not proportional to the actual threat. So you get one frank prank phone call and you change your number. Right. Like, you know, when I was, when that happened, I was like six or seven years old. I thought that was normal. I thought there was a real threat there. But um, now that, you know, I think about it, yeah. That was not warranted. We didn't need to go through all of that. Um, and so storytelling, for me, requires a kind of zooming in and zooming out, a constant kind of going back and forth. You know, you, you pick one detail, but you also have to zoom out to be able to understand in the wider context what that might mean um, for yourself now that you're, you know, maybe reminiscing about something in the past or for other people who don't know, right? You're, that zoom out kind of helps you contextualize things in a different way. Yeah, um, I agree. Um, The other thing I was thinking of, you did really sort of one of my favorite things that I know, you know, I I try to do in storytelling. I know Tequila and I are going to be talking about this in a workshop we're doing Monday, but like that no one's story exists in isolation from the sort of historical, social, political moment. So I really like how you really kind of effortlessly sort of Mm -hmm. wove in history. Like, so now we understand the amnesty that happened in the 80s or... Mm -hmm. Oh, so why did people like, I don't think in general, 
right today in 2021, people think of the Philippines when we think of immigrants coming to this country. So I really yeah. like how you, you didn't bog down the story, but you just kind of let us know what we need to know to mm-hmm. give it more context. So that's just my favorite, my favorite thing when people do that. Yeah. Thanks. I think also part of my identity has always been having to give people that elevator speech um, about why my family was here. And so just always knowing, oh yeah, dictatorship happened in 1972. And then, you know, you had to leave. Otherwise you were stuck in this country where there was martial law, meaning you could never leave your house after a certain time. And, you know, you're always being policed. So again, like, yeah, part of storytelling is also being ready and able to give people that context in a quick and dirty way, but not heavy handed. Right. Yeah, exactly. And you did that really well. I was going to say that same part about how you weaved in the history and things like that. And another thing um, you did that I'm like heavy on in my head right now with a lot of different things is showing how certain patterns of um, trauma manifest in families. It's just normal behavior. Like you said, you looked back and you're like, it was just normal. But now as an adult zoomed out, you're like, wait a minute, that was way too much. But those are those traumas become normal patterns and then you develop them and pass them on to your kids or you recognize it and don't. So you talked about that a little bit, but can you hit on that a little bit more? more of like recognizing those behaviors and like zooming out and kind of adjusting yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've been fascinated with the idea of intergenerational trauma for a little bit now because um, finally there is a word, right? There are words mm-hmm. to describe that. And growing up, we didn't have that term. Um, and I think what gets lost then is that you start normalizing particular quirks or what you see as quirks in people's behavior or in a family dynamic without understanding that context. And so when the words intergenerational trauma, um, you know, come up, you're realizing, wait a minute, this gives me um, actually a context to better understand people's behavior. It gives us empathy um, to understand why people may react to a situation in that way. Um, And so you know, when I was growing up, there there didn't, you know, there wasn't that word PTSD or intergenerational trauma. So I was a very angry and resentful teenager uh, because I didn't have that empathy for my mother. I didn't understand, you know, how World War II and her experiences as a little girl actually still carry to this day. You know, I'd say, Mom, the, the war's over. What are you talking about? You know, no one's going to invade the house. But, you know... When you experience trauma, and I think this is something that, that you know, psychologists say, when you experience trauma at a particular age, if you don't attend to that, you're kind of frozen emotionally mm-hmm. in that age, right? So, you know, those years that my mom was a little girl um, and, and that fear of making a noise or being heard by the Japanese, that fear of being caught, right? That fear of making a noise, um, you know, that fear that somehow it could lead to your own death. She's somehow frozen in that age and that had passed on to, to us. And so, um, I'm grateful for these new, you know, terms or, you know, at least new for us in, you know, (laughs) lay people who don't practice psychology that it exists out there. Right. Helps us contextualize it a little bit better. Not personalize it so much. Mm -hmm. Well, I, should we move on to our questions? Oh, yeah. I'm interested oh. to know, since the pandemic began, because we're still going and trying to survive. Sure. What's been, um, I'll let you ask the really serious question, because I want to know the juicy, like, what guilty pleasure have you developed, or a weird thing <laughs> you're streaming, or something? Oh, boy. There's a lot of that stuff. Um, okay, one that, that I'm actually happy about and not too ashamed about is um, <laughs> I learned how to embroider. Uh, so I went on Instagram, I think. I've always embroidered 
admired embroidery and my mom had tried to teach me but you know I was not interested at you know when I was a, a kid um, and then um, TikTok videos Instagram and uh, YouTube tutorials taught me mm-hmm. how to embroider so I spent most of the pandemic just buying uh, embroidery materials and and making stuff um, so yeah uh, embroidery um, let's see oh so here's an, another thing I got into reaction videos on YouTube. Have well, you ever, ever no. seen this? You too, huh? I love reaction videos. It's like you watch people react to something that they had never been exposed to before. So the genre I look at, I don't know, Tequila, do you watch yeah. this? Okay, so my favorite is young people getting to know like older music. Yes, those are good. Oh, I saw those early in the pandemic, a bunch of those. Yeah, and so... Um, yeah, like my favorite ones are where people, maybe they had heard a song, but they didn't know, um, uh, you know, who sang it. And so when they finally see the performance or they see the actual artist, you know, the surprise on there, oh, I didn't know that. Um, so there's a song, I'm trying to remember, it's it's by Redbone, um, and it was on the Guardians of the Galaxy soundtrack. I don't know if you watch Marvel movies. Um, Come and Get Your Love, mm-hmm. right? This was from the 70s. And if you watch it on YouTube, um, you, lots of people have been reacting to this video because it's a band by Native Americans. It's an entirely Native American um, Latino uh, band. And just the surprise on people's faces, like, wow, this is amazing. And so, yeah, a lot of reaction to videos to 70s and 80s music. I like the ones with randomly the food. So when they try oh, traditional, like... mukbang, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, it's like... <laughs> Oh my God, their lives are changed, or they're like, "This is it, completely a mess." So those are pretty fun. It's a whole genre. Well, you know, eating. Um, I'm happy that I can <laughs> now add some more. Um, I'll wean myself from Netflix, and I'll I'll, I'll move on to YouTube reaction videos. That'll oh, you be, can go down that yeah. rabbit hole. No, I'm, I just, know I can. Yeah, yeah. So. it's great. Um, I, I started knitting during the pandemic, so I would not feel bad about how much television I'm watching. So I could produce something. While yeah, I'm while you're so, yeah. produce a blanket to be under while you're watching Netflix. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Um, so then I, our our last question, I'm I'm pretty sure <laughs> I don't quite remember what we've been asking, but I guess um, like what is something you've sort of learned about yourself? And, and I, I kind of think though, instead of that, just given that both of you have started mm. doing this very similar kind of work, um, yeah. Or, Maybe just talk about that and let us know what you're doing. And then Tequila, you can join in too. Yeah, so uh, I had a 17-year career as a college professor. um, And then this past spring, um, a opportunity came up to be a director of diversity, equity, and inclusion for a consulting firm um, that focuses on financial inclusion. And I thought, wow, this sounds really great. Um, I took the great leap of giving up my job uh, for this new one. So it was a career pivot, as they say. Um, And I think what really surprised me was that um, I actually had skill sets I didn't realize had been there before. So um, it's about doing things like helping people with a marketing campaign or helping them strategize their business plan for the next three to five to six years. and yeah, I think that, you know, teaching kind of lulls you into this idea that that's, you know, what you're going to do. You teach, you grade papers, you give exams. Um, and then, you know, as a college professor, I was also publishing. But um, yeah, it was really great to know that, yeah, I still have that learning curve, but I was still capable of learning and, you know, implementing 
you know, new um, ideas into this industry and, and using some of my skill sets from academia into, um, yeah, another, a whole other world. So that has been um, a nice surprise. I don't think I would have been able to do this in my 20s or 30s, I think. Mm. With age comes this kind of wisdom. It, do you same. Do you feel I that? wouldn't have been able to do it, this in my 20s either. Yeah. It's the same for me with what I'm doing. And it, it just feels like there needs to be wisdom that comes with age because there's a lot of other things that go away. That's right. So we need the wisdom for sure. Yeah, absolutely. That wisdom and the ability to not sweat the small stuff. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Or take it personally. And like one of the things you said, you use storytelling in your job a lot. And like that Me is too. awesome. Again, in our 20s, how would we know to combine all of these elements to really give our best? And so can you talk a little bit about how you use storytelling in your job? Because that's one of the things Jen touches on, too, about oh, different yeah. ways you can use storytelling and advocacy and to, yeah. to make a point across. Well, I had learned when I was teaching that students would sometimes approach me years after, you know, they'd taken an intro class with me in anthropology, and they said, oh, I always remember that story you told about, you know, this, um, and it stuck with me. And so I thought, well, okay, when I do my consulting and I talk to people about best business practices, um, you know, taking those same stories to be able to explain, um, you know, implementing a new way of doing things, a new practice, it does stick with them, and they actually can see that impact um, and so it's for me about collecting those kinds of stories that, um, you know, kind of simplify things in a certain way, you know, there's still some compl- complexity in there, but, um, yeah, I really enjoy storytelling in this new format or this new industry, um, you know, helping people better understand why, you know, financial inclusion is important for especially ethnic minorities who've been historically barred from, you know, getting business loans and home loans and just general loans for for their, you know, personal lives. And so, you know, when I talk about uh, like my own family story, right, um, when I talk about others, um, yeah, it helps people better understand what it is that they need to do. You know, what what is this industry for? What is um, their pr- business practices for? Well, and also I think, you know, data can be so dry, and I think it's yeah. important to have data, but also, like, what are some of the stories behind the data? And when I think when you can couple the two of those and do it well, I think that's, you know, where learning can start really happening for people. Exactly. Yeah. I think, you know, people like the data because it actually gives them a sense of weight to what they are doing, um, especially in industries like, uh, you know, finance, banking, credit Mm -hmm. unions, um, where there's a lot at stake, you know, you need those numbers, but at the same time, just as equally, you need those stories. Um, And so, yeah, the more that we can share our stories and humanize each other and what we're doing I think you know the more we're able to actually accomplish our goals I agree and that's a great ending point okay that's right. awesome you know it's always, it's, always wow. good, it's always good to stick the landing at the end of a story exactly. so here we go Part 10 <laughs> <laughs> well thank you so much for coming thank you for thank having you. me it's always a pleasure thanks Well, it was really fun talking to Jennifer again. It, it, um, I think it was two years since we last talked to her, and, and I like talking to people about stories who think a lot about stories. Mm-hmm. And people who can craft stories well, um, kind of effortlessly. It's, it's awesome to pick their brains and figure out why they did what they did. Yeah, and I'm, I'm curious to see if you guys connect now, now that you see that you have this, you're both doing storytelling work and diversity and equity inclusion work. So 
Yeah. Keep us posted on what happens between you two. I will. And there's, and she let us know about this big change that we're all a part of, this career shift during the pandemic. Oh, what was it called? It was called, um, what, what did she call it? I don't know. Oh. Like resigners? It was a long like word that? that starts with an R. Yeah. <laughs> I remember. Yeah. But all three of us started new work during the pandemic. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Changed our lives, or at least for now. Yeah. <laughs> changed our changed our moment, our, our present. Mm-hmm. Um, so one thing that... Uh, Tequila and I have started doing in-person storytelling workshops again. Yes. We actually just did one at the Chazen, which is um, an art museum here in Madison, helping people tell stories connected to an upcoming exhibit. Yes. And then we're about to do one with Bridge the Divide uh, in Cedarsburg, and it's sto- kind of telling stories around how like race and racism has impacted you, which we're doing Monday. Two days, so yeah. we're just going to assume it goes well. Yeah, it will go well, because that's my wheelhouse, so I'm awesome to, to be able to tell stories that make people cry. <laughs> so, um, But so we have fine-tuned our workshops, so if anyone has any interest in our doing workshops, just get in touch with us at um, in, it's, it's Inside Stories Podcast at gmail.com. Yes, you think well, by now we would remember that long email address, I but know. we just, our brains don't work I like mean, that, clearly y'all. I must have made the email, because... That's I would have just did IS yeah, stories or something. That's I don't a know. ridiculously long email address, so I'm just a little too literal. Um, let's see. So, well, first of all, um, we should thank the Chazen. Thank you for hiring us. Yes, thank you. It was fun, and we will come back anytime you invite us. Um, those exhibits were beautiful, so we're excited to see them up and see what the finished product of everything looks like. Yeah, I think I think in the end they're going to pick two of the stories um, and then have the audio next to the artwork. So we'll... When that is up, we will uh, let you know. Our next, our next, whenever, whatever podcast we're recording, whenever that's up, we'll let you know. Yes. Uh, we also do want to do a big thanks to the YWCA again. Um, we are wrapping up the Amplify Madison grant. I think that grant period is winding down. So we have had fun um, doing what we can during the pandemic, telling stories and fine tuning our craft with Marisol. Yeah, and I actually think we say this almost every time, but it is true every time, which is, first of all, you should check out Ali Range Media. You should hire them if you have any audio needs, but their studio sure. looks amazing. Every time we <laughs> every come Every time we come, he's done something new. So anyhow, so it's actually very spacious. And um, so Ali Range Media, if you have any audio needs. Yes, thank you, Richard. And uh, <laughs> I think that's it. That is it. So listen to more episodes, check our Check out both of our websites to book us for these amazing workshops if you want to be able to tell great stories and just generally meet us because we're amazing people. I mean, I know you're you're tired of hearing our voice, so you can see us in person. Um, yeah, well, and I guess the other thing that um, I, I, I always hear people, every time I listen to a podcast, I'm like, oh, they always say this, so I should say this, which is not only should you subscribe if you haven't, but you should encourage your friends to subscribe. Yes. And, we're um, getting better at marketing. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm trying. <laughs> You're good at it. So anyhow, so um, apparently I'm still talking, so I'm going to stop now and uh, (laughs) see you next week. This is why we missed being in the studio, y'all, just for these little antics. Richard, I hope you're keeping that. Bye, y'all. Bye. (laughs)